Hello, everyone, and welcome to our panel podcast entitled Breaking Out of the Range, where we'll be looking at the investment outlook for the second half of 2023. It is the 6th of June. My name is Lorna Denny, and I'm joined today by Seamus Lyons and our special guest, Chris Igo of AXA Investment Managers. We spoke at the end of last year about black swans, and it would be fair to say that few people saw the US regional banking crisis coming. Such left-field events aside, a cloud of uncertainty still hangs over the financial markets, whether about inflation, recession, or the peak in the interest rate cycle. Throw in recent brinkmanship surrounding the US debt ceiling, and it's no wonder markets have been range-bound in recent months. So will the second half bring the inflection point in interest rates, or will the fight against inflation grind on until we hit recession in the major economies? And could either outcome cause markets to break out of their trading range? Seamus, could I just please ask you to set the scene for us by giving a few highlights of financial market performance so far this year? Hi, Lorna. Yes, sure. As you said, it's certainly been a very different year for markets this year compared to last year. So markets have enjoyed a pretty positive start to the year and most now sit with uh, double digit gains. And much of this year's gains also came at the very start of the year in January and February, as markets continued a rally that had really begun in October of last year. And much of this rally had been predicated on a fall in inflation, which has been improving, and reasonably resilient economic data and activity as well. But as you said, it's not all been smooth sailing. So in March, we had a mini banking crisis of sorts when the number of US regional banks collapsed. And then in Europe, Credit Suisse was forced into a hastily arranged merger with its rival UBS. So fears of another financial crisis were widespread and rampant for those couple of weeks. But preemptive action by the Fed and other central banks just helped to calm markets. And actually, since then, since late March, really, markets have been pretty range bound and if anything, just kind of grinding their way higher in many cases, you know, as investors are trying to grapple with the issue of sticky inflation, but generally resilient economic data and labor markets. In terms of market leadership and style, it's been very much a year of growth this year. So a growth-led market with big tech and the so-called fangs being the big winners so far this year. In terms of bond markets, it's also been a much better year than last year. With yields generally moving within ranges and this on the back improving inflation figures and less worries on monetary policy. And with yields having reset to much higher levels now after last year, investors were able to benefit from the higher levels of carry as well. So you're seeing positive returns in most of bond asset classes. And not everything is up though. We move to more cyclical areas of the market, such as commodities. These are struggling. You know, broad commodity index is down typically around 9% year to date. So not all great, but yeah, for the most part, a much different picture to what last year was. Yes, thank you for that. And Chris, when we spoke last in December, you were looking forward to small but positive bond returns this year. Has it all been panning out as you expected? Yes, morning, Lorna. Morning, Seamus. Yes, it has, actually. I mean, if you look across the fixed income markets, many assets have delivered small positive returns so far this year. The broader picture is that, you know, the kind of benchmark government bond yields have been trading in a fairly narrow range since the beginning of the year. So most of the return that's accruing to fixed income investors is coming from carry, from the higher coupons, the higher interest rates. So it's not particularly exciting, but if it continued for the whole of the year, then we'd have you know low to middle single digit returns from most bond markets. The best returns have been in things like high yield, where obviously there is more carry, there's more yield, and there hasn't been as yet any significant credit issues leading to you know defaults or, or losses 
others associated with credit problems. You know, to me, the bond market is behaving as we expected. It's taking the view still that interest rates are close to a peak, that inflation will continue to decline and we'll get these steady income generated returns from fixed income. Yes, thank you. It's a technical point, but the crisis uh, Seamus talked about among the US regional banks did in itself tighten financial conditions in the US. In a way, it was doing the Fed's job for it. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I think what happened with the regional banks is both a result of, you know, financial conditions tightening, because one of the core problems was the value of bond holdings in these banks' asset portfolios declined as interest rates went up, and therefore there was a mismatch between their assets and liabilities. But the result of all of this has led to a, a tightening of credit conditions in terms of bank lending. Bank lending is slowing. Banks are tightening their lending conditions, and we see it across many sectors, but it's particularly particularly obvious in things like commercial real estate, where the regional banks were a major provider of finance to real estate companies. So there has been some tightening of credit conditions, which, as you say, is doing the Fed's job for them. In an even more technical point is that as deposits have flowed out of some of the banks, because depositors have got less confidence in some of these banks, that money has tended to go into money market funds. And the money held in these money market funds has been invested in strategies like reverse repo, which is based basically parking money at the Fed. And that in itself drains liquidity from the entire money market system. So overall, there has been a tightening of uh, financial conditions. It's not just the Fed raising interest rates. But so far, and we'll come on to this, I think, the economies remained very resilient to this tightening. Yes, that is interesting. But given the backdrop you described there, would we still expect that the Fed would be the first central bank to hit the pivot point in interest rates? I think it will, and it may already have. We'll find out next week. You know, I think more than anywhere else, the inflation in the US was generated by the energy shock, the oil prices going up in, in 2022. And there has been some second round effects. We've seen wage growth picking up and so on. But inflation is coming down and the momentum of inflation in the US is easing perhaps a little bit more quickly than, than it is in Europe. And the Fed's raised rates by 500 basis points. So I think they've got enough of an argument to say, we're done for now. Let's see how this higher level of interest rates affects the economy. There are some signs of growth slowing down, inflation easing. And I wouldn't be surprised if the next FOMC meeting next week, the message is we're on hold for the time being, which can't be said with as much confidence for the European Central Bank, where the message is still that more needs to be done in order to bring inflation down. Yes, as you say, there is a growing expectation that the Fed will just skip this potential interest rate hike next week. It's very useful what you're saying there, because bond prices typically do respond to interest rate movements or expected interest rate movements. But if we turn to the equity market, Seamus, you mentioned the huge rally we've seen among the big tech stocks. And we're seeing once again this phenomenon of very narrow market leadership. Could you please explain what you mean by that, why it is significant? Yes, sure. So whilst markets are off to a very strong start to the year, it is by no means the case that all companies or sectors are doing well. In fact, most companies and sectors are actually either down on the year or returning very little above zero. So the performance of the broader market is actually just driven by three sectors, technology, communication services and consumer discretionary. So we know we have 11 sectors in the market and these are essentially your growth sectors. But even what's more interesting is that even within these sectors, it's just a handful of companies driving the performance of the market. So let's take the US, the largest market in the world. There are seven companies there that are contributing over 90% of the positive return that the market's delivering. So we talked about double digits in the US this year. So almost 90% of that is coming from seven companies. These are your trillion dollar mega caps for the most part. So Apple, 
Microsoft, Amazon, to Alphabets, NVIDIA, Tesla, and Meta. These seven companies are delivering so much performance, mostly because their market caps are so large, they have a large influence then on the market as a result. And they did, in fairness, have a pretty average 2022. So most of these companies that have lagged the market were down quite a bit. And so they're certainly bouncing back with a vengeance this year, which is very much helped by the interest rate outlook and the picture there. So you ask, what does this mean? I mean, for one thing, it probably paints a prettier picture of the economy that is really, that is the case, because the average company, as we said, is actually either delivered negative returns this year or certainly haven't delivered very positive returns. So the average company is faring a lot worse and struggling in this environment. In addition, you know, the market is overly exposed to the fortunes of just a handful of companies. You know, we've had situations like this in the past. So back in the 70s, we had the energy companies which dominated the market just before the financial crisis. We had the big financials were dominating the market. And these periods of market dominance, they always end for one thing, but they often end in a kind of painful manner. I'm not sure that'll necessarily be the case this time around, but for sure, it's unlikely that these companies will continue to grow at the super normal rates of growth they have been growing at. And, and when this occurs, you know, it will allow others to take up the mantle and, and lead market performance. The concern would be that, you know, as these companies come off their high levels of growth, that it causes a bit of friction and panic in the markets. And given their size in the markets, that would be a concern. Yes, indeed. And much of these surge in tech stocks that you've just described can be put down to this meteoric advance in generative artificial intelligence or AI following the launch of ChatGPT late last year. Could this genuinely be a transformative technology as is being claimed? Yes. Yeah, so one of the companies I mentioned above, NVIDIA, they make chips mostly known for making gaming chips or graphics chips. These recently came out on their last earnings call with some very bullish outlook on their business, which would be driven by growth and more widespread use of AI in everything, really. And, you know, just in the back of that, there's a snippet. Stock rose $186 billion in one day in NVIDIA. That's typically the market cap of about five or six of your S&P 500 companies. And actually, the company itself is up over 300% this year. So, you know, it's crazy phenomenal in that company, but it wasn't just there. The euphoria spread across all things AI related. So any other chip makers, companies where AI is an important part of their business, they've all been doing very, very well in recent weeks in the back of this. So, you know, you've asked, will this transformative technology, how is it going to play out? My honest answer is I don't know. I'm not enough of a tech expert on the matter. But what I would say, though, is, you know, we have seen similar periods of euphoria before. Think back to the late 90s, you know, the Internet companies where their prices went through the roof on expectation that the Internet is just going to dominate everything. You know, we did with the 3G, I think it was in the more the early 2000s, you know, the onboarding of 3G technologies and phones. Uh, so, you know, we've had these situations before, but and the one thing you can see is the path to success has not always generally been smooth or come as quickly as initially anticipated. In addition, NVIDIA and, and a lot of these companies, they're chip makers. History always shows these have a boom and bust kind of cycle. They're very much linked to what's going on in the economic cycle. So, you know, for the story to be different this time, it's not so clear. You know, I am sure that AI will be very transformational in time and have a big impact on our lives and more, more broader than that. But, you know, markets have a tendency to, to get ahead of themselves. This can be a painful experience for investors, given how quickly markets can move up, then also move back down again. And so it's a very interesting story right now, for sure. It certainly is. We'll be watching that one with interest. But back to the fundamentals then, and behind the drama and the hype, economic expectations remain fairly tough for the second half of the year. Certainly, global PMIs are barely above the level that would indicate expansion, Chris. 
Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, it's been the consensus view that growth would slow because we've had this, you know, significant amount of monetary tightening and reduced liquidity from central banks. It would be surprising if growth hadn't slowed. I think the question now is whether it is a softish landing or whether we do get a more typical central bank induced recession. And the jury's still out on that. And I think that's important for parts of the fixed income market, particularly for credit assets, but it's also very important for equities. As Seamus has said, if you ignore the technology sector, then broad parts of the equity market kind of look as though they're trading on a recessionary basis anyway. But the data has been quite resilient. You know, consumer spending has held up. The labour market is very strong. And that's not just a US phenomenon. We still see very low unemployment rates in Europe. If it's turning, it's turning very slowly. It's not a sudden stop in, in economic growth. And forecasts of a recession keep being pushed out into the future. And it may be that Jay Powell is some kind of magician and he achieved a soft landing in 2019. He may be able to achieve it again this time round. I think we'll find out over the next couple of quarters as, you know, the longer interest rates remain high, the more impact they will have on economic growth. But it's surprising how resilient a lot of the data has been. You know, the PMI show a softening in the cycle. But as yet, the broad swathe of data doesn't indicate that we're in recession at the moment. Yes, thank you. And of course, the root cause of all these recent actions by central banks in the West has been inflation. But one country where the inflation picture appears less problematic is Japan. And we have a very interesting situation for the Japanese stock market currently, Seamus. Yes, it's one of the best performing markets this year with many investors liking its prospects. Relative to other developed economies, its inflation picture is much more benign as well. This has allowed it to keep yields under control and have looser monetary policy. Also, with a new governor at the helm of the Bank of Japan, one who hasn't shown too much hawkish sentiment just yet, it's likely that Japan's going to maintain its yield curve control for the foreseeable future. Um, also, when we look at things from a macro perspective, the picture here is better than it is for a lot of other economies as well. So, you know, Japan should definitely benefit from the reopening of China, which has occurred late last year. We're seeing big improvements in the corporate governance structure there, reforms to shareholder engagement. This is all very good for a lot of the companies and stocks there. Flows and technicals, these are also pointing very favorably for Japan right now as well. We look at valuations, they're pretty attractive at 13 times forward earnings, certainly relative to the past in Japan. So, yeah, right now, there's definitely a number of factors which make Japan a lot more interesting. At the same time as all these developments, then, if the Bank of Japan were to bring an end to their ultra-loose monetary policy, this could amount to a sea change in the investment backdrop for Japan. And if Japanese investors then begin to repatriate the huge sums of money that they have invested abroad over the decades, what might be the impact on these overseas markets, Chris? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's an issue that's come up, you know, several times in the past. You know, Japan is traditionally a high savings rate economy with an aging demographic. And a lot of the savings have been invested overseas and continue to be because typically interest rates are much lower in Japan. I'm not so sure we'll see anything too cataclysmic here. I think the Bank of Japan, even though it's got new leadership, will be very, very cautious about changing its monetary stance. You know, the consensus forecast for inflation in Japan is for it to be about between two and a half and three percent this year and then easing again next year. So it's not as if inflation is running out of control in Japan and it's been driven like, you know, to a large extent, like everywhere else, by higher energy prices globally. So 
I think the Bank of Japan will change its policy, but do it very, very gradually. And if you look at the shape of the Japanese government bond yield curve, it's moved a bit higher compared to where we were at the beginning of the year, but it's still stayed quite stable. And at the moment, when Japanese investors look at European bonds, when they hedge that back into Japanese yen, it's still more attractive to invest in European government bonds or European credit. So I don't see a big sea change in those flows. So the 2023 debt ceiling crisis in the US is now, it appears, behind us. Possibly markets might now simply just resume their fixation on these pivot in interest rates and move back into a trading range on that account. But otherwise, what could be the market moving big themes to look out for in the second half of 2023? Seamus, I'll come to you first, please. Yes, sure. I actually don't think there will be too many strong dominating themes that we'll see. There's obviously going to be some themes. I think the fight against inflation is far from over. And this is going to continue to be a headache for markets and central banks. And this in turn may lead to a new normal of interest rates having a much higher than expected neutral rate. You know, they won't be going back to zero anytime soon. So this is whether it's a theme, but it's certainly something that I think is going to be sticking around for a while. You know, we spoke earlier about the dominance of the mega caps in terms of performance this year. I think this might once again embolden the regulators to try Try and stifle these big companies somehow, be it antitrust laws, competition rules, just big fines. And they've tried a lot of this in the past. You know, there is a growing systemic risk in these powerful companies. You know, so it's something that's going to get more attention again. And so this could be, you know, a bit of a headwind for those companies that they haven't really had so much. I don't think it's going to be probably more black swans than key themes that are going to be driving markets, you know, from here. And over to you, Chris. Yeah, I'd agree with Seamus, really. I think, you know, rates will reach a peak soon and then they will stay there for the rest of the year. And, you know, central banks then have a little bit more flexibility in how they respond to the economic cycle. But we're certainly not going back to zero. And that means that, you know, fixed income generally will be more interesting than it was for many years. There'll be higher yields in the market. There are higher credit spreads. And I think, interestingly, fixed income can act as a a diversifier when used in a portfolio of riskier assets like, like equities. I guess where the key thing for me, I think we're past the most concern about central banks tightening. It's now what happens to growth and earnings. And I think that is going to be the driver. So the economic data is going to be, as always, very, very closely watched for signs that the economy is really slowing down and for that to then show up in corporate confidence and corporate earnings reports. And we'll need to be able to look through the technology side to see what's happening in sectors like consumer staples and industrials and materials, because if there is a broader base slowdown in economic growth and and consumer demand, then that's where we're likely to see it. But it's all about growth, I think, now, having been about interest rates in the first half of the year. That's very interesting. Thank you. Seamus, how does all this impact the Architas outlook for assets as we move into the second half? Yes. So um, you haven't recovered from their March lows. Your markets have really been pretty range-bound since then, and we actually think this may continue to be the case for the foreseeable future. So whilst the impact of monetary tightening is beginning to show in the wider economy, there's also a very strong sense of economic resilience. And this is most noticeable in the labour market, where despite some modest signs of weakening here and there, the unemployment rate remains historically low and the broad picture remains a healthy one. So in this environment, we expect markets to trend sideways in the absence of any material change to the economic outlook. For us, we're, we're pretty comfortable with a neutral stance in equity 
activities at the moment. We were overweight emerging markets in Asia for a number of months there, but we've recently closed this out. You know, we had expected a pickup in uh, economic activity in China post their zero COVID policy removal. We saw this in certain areas, in certain bits, but, you know, at the same time, the region remains beset by concerns of geopolitical tensions with the US in particular and state intervention in certain sectors. So also we're seeing better prospects elsewhere. US and Europe are doing very well, so other developed markets. And so we're less confident now of any meaningful outperformance you might get from China or Asia as a whole. In terms of fixed income, talked about it earlier, but we expect bond yields to remain reasonably range bound for the foreseeable future. We're near the end of rate rising cycles. Most areas are at the end already. And so whilst market expectations, we we'll probably think the market's a little bit ahead of themselves in terms of pivots or rate cuts, but at the same time, it's hard to yield rising material here given, you know, that we still have a slowing economic environment and the Fed obviously very near the end of its cycle, if not already. So we're also neutral on bonds. One area where we do feel a bit more comfortable and confident is credit and emerging market debt. Talked about the levels of carry there available. You know, the credit spreads are interesting. So it's one area where we see the risk reward as being attractive. So we're happy to take a bit more risk in both IG credit and emerging market debt. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you.